What's up, podcast? We are sprinting to 100 episodes. We have eight to go, and uh, I got a great, got a bunch of bonus content, a bunch of bonus episodes to help get us there. Uh, enjoy this one. This was from our Back to the Future of Work event that took place uh, last week, and this is with Michael F.D. Anaya, codename MFDA. He's a former FBI special agent. And on this, he's talking about a critical oversight in data breaches that no one is talking about. I uh, hope you enjoy this one. Hey, welcome back. Uh, we are back yet again. Uh, this is the lunch keynote like this is this is the the moment uh that we've been uh one of the one of the one of the big moments we've been waiting for today there's been a lot of good moments today right uh it's like how do you you know what which which one is your favorite kid right but you know today right now this talk um is with mfda michael fd anaya uh former uh, former fbi special agent um and uh, director over there at expanse and you know talking about something that you know with with COVID and with everything that happened, this great reset, Frank, you know, something that we, we couldn't have a whole day without talking about cybersecurity, right? So we're talking a lot about communications, uh, about collaboration, about customer experience, like CX stacks, sales velocity. But like, what about what about cybersecurity? Like, how has that been impacted through all this? And, you know, where's that headed? Yeah, no question. I mean, I think that also ties to like, you know, the risk um, inherent in running a business. And as you put people out to the edge, you know, how do you ensure that you have like safe people, safe data, um, optimized, you know, workforce, and uh, you can stay on point because even though you did talk about some of these other things like customer experience, like the worst customer experience you can have is not being available or having your, your solutions go down. So like this could not be more at like the foundation of what's going on. And what's really cool is with our speaker today is that, you know, he's, he's kind of a, you know, a mix between, you know, geeky cyber techie guy and Zig Ziglar. Like they kind of like, you know, he's going to give us a checkup from the neck up. You know, that's that's what we need, right? To sometimes you need that jolt, right? To get thinking forward. Yeah, absolutely, guys. And uh, and we're live on LinkedIn, so we're back on LinkedIn. Hello again, LinkedIn. Live on LinkedIn, live on YouTube. So if you're watching from the Future of Work Pavilion, click on that live chat pop out because this one's going to be highly interactive. So click on that live chat, have that thing pop out so you can join in the conversation. Uh, we'll put your chat up on the screen like so, and uh, you'd be able to ask questions directly to, to MFDA as we go and and be a contributing member uh, to this awesome Awesome show that we're about to uh, dawn on you. Here we go. Uh, let's bring you in. Uh, uh, ready or not, MFDA, here we go. Hey, everybody. Michael FD and I, welcome. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, we can. We got you loud and clear. Excellent. We did it. Welcome uh, to the show. Welcome to the conference. Well, first of all, let me clarify a few things. One, I am your favorite child. All right. <laughs> Categorically. That's true. I am the favorite. And uh, two, I don't know if I'm geeky at all. I have these glasses on, but that's just a prop. <laughs> Make it look yeah. smarter. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. You know, like this is all good. We can take that offline. We can talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, some, so yeah, Michael, I mean, uh, I understand you have a presentation for us. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up whenever you're ready for it. You just give me the, the visual, uh, the cue here. Oh, and uh, the floor is yours and, and we're, we're at your disposal here. Perfect. Yeah, we're good to go. Are you guys ready to? Bam, we're here. Here we are. All right, excellent. Well, uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, but I'm going to chat with you guys today is a critical oversight in combating data breaches. Uh, it dawned on me in the past, like, like why do data breaches keep happening? It's like, it's interesting. I was reading the reports and just time and time again, they just keep happening over and over again. I feel like people who aren't necessarily in tune with specifically what's going on. I figured I should probably spend some time to explain one key element that happens many times in these data breaches. So that's what this presentation is going to be about. It's going to kind of walk you through kind of what we need to think about. But before we get started, we need to do a mindset shift. So this is something where uh, Kyle and Frank, I want to need your help. Uh, and or anyone else who's a uh, part of this presentation, feel free to chime in here. But ultimately, I want us to sort of think like the adversary. 
Okay, so that's quite critical. Not only the adversary, but then also the person defending the asset in question. So let's look at this house. So let's assume that, uh, who wants to be a burglar? Which one of you guys oh. wants to be the attacker? Oh, I'll, I'll take that on, I guess. All right, excellent. And then- I've always, uh, I've always wanted to break into a house like this, so, you know. Perfect. Uh, we should talk later. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I hope there are any law enforcement officers watching or listening right now. Right. right. Uh, all right, so then Frank, that means you're gonna be defending this house. Okay. So let's start with the attacker. Now, if you're a burglar, Kyle, and you're envisioning this house as your target, what would you start thinking about as some possible ways into this house? Well, definitely not the front door. Definitely not those windows. Um, I'd probably try to go try to go up, scale up, and try to go in from up. Okay, that's a great technique. Now, uh, Frank, for you, how would you start defending your home? Well, so first of all, you know that like we live in Texas, and um, I live in Austin, but still at the same time we you know Texas. So like firepower is really important. So like a lot of mounting positions inside. Like I can see like in that upper left hand corner, like you could get a fifty five caliber turret on that, no problem whatsoever. A lot of vantage point on that like southern exposure side of it. I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, I forgot forgot to mention. I forgot to mention. I'm bringing firepower too if I'm breaking in. So just just, just okay. Okay. All right, that kind of changes my answer a little bit. (laughs) So, um, like, I really like crazy glue and glass, and so there's going to be a lot of areas around here that, like, as you're scaling up the side of this, Kyle, um, you better have like on like five inch thick gloves on there, and I'm going to have it lit up. Like, light is like that's a really powerful deterrent and sound. So I'm going to have like a lot of sound triggers and stuff going on. I'm even going to have forwarding notifications that go to neighbors that are going to ring on a, like a dialer. It's going to be on a consistent dialer. It's just going to call them and call them and call them. It'll call forward to their kids and stuff like that. I'm even going to have a phone tracker on there. I don't know where people are at. So, um, I mean, there's less police now. So like, I've got to like, it's got to be family and friends. I'll, I'll, I'll have points. Um, uh, Kai, I'm a little worried that you're not going to survive yeah. <laughs> burglary. Yeah, I'm pretty worried too now. This is a next <laughs> kin plan. And so this is, yeah, we're going to help out. Uh, That's so I, awesome. Well, Frank, you prepared. You are prepared for this one. Yeah. All right. But that's perfect. So that's awesome. But this is the mindset shift I kind of want to walk you guys through from both the attacker and the defender. So when we look at data breaches, one of the key components here is defending the network against an attacker. So the analogy I like to draw here is this house is sort of analogous to the concept of your network. And so Frank's got a lot of valid points. You identify your vulnerabilities, you identify like things you know exist that someone could find interest in. And that's how you defend your network. You do the same thing for your home. Um, you would basically have a ring doorbell. You might have an alarm company. You're probably going to instruct your kids or house members what to do if someone were to break in or some stranger comes to the door. So you have these different processes. It's akin to run a network. You have your employees. You train them on exactly, well, don't click on these links. You provide that awareness training. You're going to put some key defenses. You're going to use a virtual private network. You're probably going to have an intrusion detection system. You're going to do these different things to defend your network. All right. So that's the mindset shift, though. I want us to think that through because, again, the other side of the coin is the attacker, and they're aware of all this. And so now they're finalizing their attack plan, how they basically break into your home. All right. So pause there real quick. I did a brief introduction when I first came in, but let me explain kind of who I am. So currently, I'm the head of cyber risk at Expanse. Uh, prior to this, I was, uh, was another, I was a head of investigations for a smaller startup. And prior to that, I was with the FBI for about 14 years. And during that time, I investigated all forms of cybercrime. So I did that for about 14 years and I was a special agent. So that basically meant I'm the guy who carries a badge and a gun. So I did that and very rewarding, very interesting work, learned a lot. So some of those things lend to this presentation today. And this is where I'm drawing some of that experience from. Okay, so that's who I am. So let's shift into how you can connect with me. If you're interested in connecting, these are the different platforms I'm on. Uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, Twitter, in that order. <laughs> so uh, I have a Twitter account, but I'm like literally not active at all. I mean, I'll post something or, or tweet something, I don't know, once in a month. 
but I'm not really that active. I just started a YouTube channel. So subscribe to that. I'll put videos out there. Um, I'll talk about cybersecurity. I'll talk about leadership, all those things. And then LinkedIn, classic, usual. Hit me up there. All right. So that's how you connect with me. You want to know more. So let's look at numbers. I want to break it down by explaining why we need to care about attack surface and our assets. Like how big are these data breaches? So I just pulled some numbers from 2019. So look at these. These are the biggest data breaches. So we're looking at some companies that most of us are familiar with. The one I'd like to draw attention to is Capital One. So Capital One's a major institution. Uh, and for them to lose 100 million records, that's quite substantial. And this was just in this is the top three breaches in 2019. That's not to include like 2020. Um, there's been multiple breaches thus far that happened this year, and they happen almost on a daily cadence, depending on how severe they are, and depends on people report them. So they're constant occurrences over and over and over again. And this really started me thinking about, okay, what's happening? Like, why are companies constantly being hit? So shifting gears, I want to talk about some industry data. I want to focus on two key industry reports for this presentation. I'm going to pull directly from those reports. That's where I'm sourcing all my data from. And each one I'll define for you. So the first one I'm going to pull from MITRE. So let's look at MITRE's attack matrix. Um, before we jump into that, let me kind of define what MITRE is, in case you don't know. So MITRE is a not-for-profit organization working in the public interest. They span state, federal, and local governments, as, as well as industry and academia. So they out, they're out there collecting a bunch of data. I had a friend who used to work for MITRE who shared a lot about what they do. In summary, they're just doing a lot of research. And they provide a lot of this information for free. So this, what I'm going to share with you next, is something you can grab from MITRE's website. And it's referenced in the actual presentation itself. But this is their attack matrix, and specifically for enterprise. What this basically is, if you look at each element on here, these are the steps an attacker or hacker will take when they attack your network. So MITRE's enumerated them. I used to chat about this a lot when I was with the FBI. I called it the intrusion lifecycle, slightly different variation of it, but ultimately the same sort of concept. So it goes from one to 11. The 12th one on here is impact. So that's just basically impact to the organization itself. So again, these are all critical components to be aware of if you're defending your network. These are the things a hacker's gonna do. Now I'm only gonna talk about one for this presentation. For this presentation, I'm gonna hone in on initial access. That's the key focus here. All right, so let's chat about this a little bit more. Um, Miner talks about different techniques, the nine techniques specifically that they enumerate in their matrix regarding um, the types of techniques a hacker is going to employ. These are the first three. And I like these first three because they bring home to me a key component that we need to be mindful of. One is drive-by compromise. Drive-by compromise potentially could look like somebody who goes by your website and they notice a piece of JavaScript that's open to compromise. And they could basically facilitate an attack just because you have JavaScript running your site that isn't necessarily up to date, that is not configured correctly, that could be a potential vector for compromise. So drawback compromise. The second one is exploiting public facing applications. This could be an SMB database. Um, this could also be a SQL database, depending on whatever you have that's public facing. If you have something publicly facing, that is something that attackers are gonna go for. The third one is external remote services. So you're looking at uh, the big one here is going to be like Citrix or a uh, potential VPN. So virtual private networks. These are all publicly facing. These are ways that people come into your network. So going back to the home analogy, kind of like, well, so what does that kind of mean? It means like drive by, someone just drives by your home and they're quickly looking at some vulnerabilities from the outside. They might actually try to open your door, get out of the car and open your door. If you don't lock your front door, that potentially now is a vulnerability. Um, the VPN element. VPN is something that allows you to connect securely to your network and your employees to go back and forth. That potentially could be akin to a garage or front door. You have it guarded, but that's a way in and out. So these are all different things to think about. Hackers are doing the exact same thing a burglar is going to do. They're going to look at vectors in which they can intrude upon your network. Just like a burglar is going to look for vectors to intrude upon your home the goal is to exfil or exfiltrate something of value. In this instance, it could be critical information. It could be intellectual property. It could be a number of things. In the home analogy, it could be TVs, jewelry, et cetera. So these are great parallels. Okay. 
So let's jump back into the, some key takeaways with those three I just mentioned. All these deal with internet-facing asset types. So that's a, that's a critical component. They're all internet-facing, meaning these are all things that you and I and everyone else can access from the internet. Just like that home, those are all things you can touch on the outside of your home. They're not internal elements like a room, like a door to your bedroom would be an internal access point. That's not what we're talking about. All those three vectors all deal with external facing asset types or internet facing. Okay, so the next data set I'm gonna dig deeper into is the 2020 data breach report by Verizon. And so this is the industry benchmark in case you are not familiar with this. Verizon basically is a gold standard in data breach reporting. They put this out every year. It's cited and touted by multiple people in the industry. Um, there's some criticisms of it, but there's some, a lot of praises. But ignoring all that, we're just gonna look at this report. Uh, basically, this report is about looking about 4,000 different breaches. So that's where their data is pulled from. It's about 4,000 different data breaches. That's where they're gathering this data from. Okay, what motivates hackers? So it makes sense when you look at this, like, oh, duh, financially motivation. That's what it is. The report basically enumerates about 80% of breaches were financially motivated. So I like to highlight that because it's key to think about who this attacker is and what they're after. And the vast majority of them are looking for something they can basically monetize. When I was with the FBI, same thing. The number of hackers that I basically was targeting were all essentially, not all of them, but most of them were looking at trying to find ways to make money. Whether it's a sophisticated attack or a basic attack, a smaller subset were nation state actors. These are individuals operating at the behest of a nation government such as China, Russia, or whomever. Uh, and so that's a smaller group, but ultimately majority of hackers tend to be financially motivated. So that's something to be mindful of. The next thing the report talks about is the tactics that are utilized. These are the top three tactics for these data breaches. The first one is hacking. So about 45% of the 4,000 data breaches were in fact various forms of hacking. The next two are kind of interesting, but it's social engineering, which basically means someone got tricked into doing something that they didn't intend to do. And the final one is error. So what is error? Error is like literally just human error. Like someone made a mistake. They clicked on something they weren't supposed to. Uh, they accidentally left something open. They didn't know they configured the server because they had to configure for security. They didn't know that. Just human error. And so that was kind of interesting that that's a third one or tied. I think technically is the third one because this, I'm rounding up, but it was just kind of interesting that there's so many human error. So if you're running a business, train your people in summary, but hacking. So let's talk about hacking because this is the big one. So hacking can be divided into three groups. So the first one is basically the utilization of stolen or brute force credentials. Uh, that's what I saw a lot when I was with the FBI. Uh, the second one is exploding vulnerabilities. And the third one is basically looking at backdoors or C2 functionality, so command and control functionality. That's what C2 stands for, command and control. Um, this is interesting, this report, basically over 80% of these types of hacking attacks fall in category number one. So the vast majority of them are utilizing stolen or brute force credentials. So what does that basically mean? It basically means that hackers are trying to get access to your employee data trying to get it any which way they can. They wanna get legitimate credentials to log on into your network without you knowing. That's the favorite technique, uh, which makes sense if you think about it because it's easy. So let's kind of dig deeper into this. Um, in reviewing these connection attempts by ports, and this is time that Verizon looked at a honeypot data, they identified that most target reports were SSH and Telnet. So some of you gurus like Telnet, Telnet's still around, it still is around and people are still using it. SSH or Secure Shell is a more secure version, but Telnet and SSH, in case you're kind of like, well, what does that actually mean? Think mm -hmm. of, let's go back to that house analogy. These are essentially doors and windows. These are ways into your network by design because you need to have employees that come in and out. Now you could in theory lock down your house and secure it completely and not let anyone in or out, but you know, and as the house isn't really functional anymore. So you need to have these avenues into your network. When I chat about to some other people who aren't necessarily in the know, they kind of like, well, why don't you just not allow Telnet access? And some companies do, and they, they replace it with something else. Or, or SSH. The, again, 
these are just protocols, but there's other protocols in play. But these, the report highlights these two protocols were the most targeted by hackers when they're looking at a honeypot. Should back up a little bit in case some of you are trying to figure out what's a honeypot. A honeypot essentially is a server that's sitting out there by design that is open to compromise, mostly used by researchers to figure out if something and analyze behavior, if something's going to be attacked. And they they basically do research on it from the outside and see, well, what are people doing when they go into this particular server? So they're watching and they're observing it. And that's what they observed when Verizon Wireless was looking at all this honeypot data. So those are just important things to think about. Those are the two key components that hackers are going after. Again, critical information. This is something that you can take home with and be like, okay, ask your network administrator. Well, oh, hold on. What are we doing regarding SSH? Are we running Telnet? Where are we running Telnet? Um, how do we secure it? Can we secure Telnet? All really valid information and something to think about. So the next one, the second one on here I'll talk about is exploiting vulnerabilities. So this is directly a quote from the report I thought was interesting. But hosts susceptible to major new vulnerabilities tend to be tend to still be defenseless against many older vulnerabilities. So think about that. So new vulnerability comes up, and they the report realizes Verizon realized this particular company is susceptible to this type of attack. And when they basically evaluate that particular asset, they realize, oh, it's also susceptible to an older attack that in theory should have been patched. Okay, so I'm gonna pause there. I wanna come back to the sentiment because it's interesting the report ties us all together. That thing is quite critical. So let's look at asset landscape. Most targeted assets are servers, over 60%. Um, these are basically, which makes sense because ultimately these type of attacks, the attacker is gonna go after something of most value. And in this instance, the most valuable element is likely a server. The server gives you access to so much data. If you think about all the servers you have on your network, they're rich. It's my baby here. Yeah, daddy. Here. <laughs> Thank you, baby. Uh, kids, what are you going to do with them? <laughs> Thank you, mother. Delivery. All right. So ultimately, that's just one of the critical components here. The other thing I don't highlight, the other second most targeted are people. Um, I've talked to other people about this. Unfortunately, we as people, including myself, we're like your greatest vulnerability when it comes to the tax service reduction because we click on things, right? Like I, I got an email the other day. Uh, it was a while ago, but I got an email and I'm like, what is this email? And I clicked on, I'm like, I shouldn't have clicked on it. I was stupid. And it was stupid. It took me to some site and I was like, ah, I don't think this site looks legitimate. But ultimately, even the most skilled of us, we get, we, we get lost. We click on something we're not supposed to. So that's definitely a problem. But this is targeting, this is basically highlighting 60% of these hackers are going after servers. Okay, so there's potentially an asset management problem. Uh, approximately 43% of interfacing IPs are in one network. However, organizations have five more networks. So let's break that down. Basically what this is saying about 57% of interfacing IPs belong to a separate network, not the main network by this particular company. So let's tie this together with the other thing I brought up earlier, which was talking about how hosts susceptible to new vulnerabilities are also susceptible to older vulnerabilities. What Verizon Wire, what Verizon basically opined of in this instead of doing this, they were concerned that what's happening is this data points to the fact that companies are aware of a data breach. Like you're looking at the home, they're aware of the vulnerabilities that exist. But what if you didn't know that was your home? If you didn't know a home was your home, there's a high, high probability you wouldn't defend it because it's not your home. You don't know it's your home. So that was quite interesting. So that's what this they started opining. They realized, well, hold on. What they think is happening in that a second element on here about the host, they think that those susceptible accounts or susceptible servers that are susceptible for new and old are essentially elements that are outside of the company's focus. They don't know they exist. So they're not patching them because they don't know they belong to them. And this was quite revolutionary. I was just like, oh, that was really fascinating. So this is really an indication of an asset management problem. Okay, so looking at this house, um, 
what does this actually mean? So this house, if this is the only asset, not a problem. So Frank Kyle, if Kyle's only attacking this house, Frank, you don't worry about it because you clearly have a well thought out plan and Frank probably won't survive that attack. But what if that's not your only house? What if you have a multitude of the houses? Because we'll say, uh, Frank, your family is a real estate, you're a real estate mogul and you have uh, uncles and cousins and you're all part of this family business. And you have a bunch of different houses across the city in Austin. And so you have a multitude of assets. The question is, are you going to know each house or which house is your house? Now, maybe in that situation you might, but we all have a crazy family relative like Uncle Harry, who's like, you know, unpredictable and he makes really bad decisions. I have, I have, I doubt my uncle's listening. His name's Uncle Abel. He makes really bad decisions. So uh, side note, um, you do not want him and managing any asset you might have. But anyway, so you have a bunch of assets sitting out there. In this situation, it's easy to do one, but now so you look at more, it becomes much harder. But what if you expand outside of that neighborhood and now you look at the entire city and now you have thousands upon thousands of homes and we'll say it's not even that city you expand to the state, the country, the globe. If you have over a million different homes across the globe, there's a high, 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 high 100% chance you lose track of them. That one spreadsheet you have isn't working for you. This is what's really quite critical. And this is what people don't quite understand. So here's the key takeaway. The key takeaway is this. Hackers, uh, hacking, basically the focus is using credentials that they acquire. They're going to tar target most prevalent and successful type of attack. Knowing where your assets are is critical to protecting your assets. We identified per the report, hackers are going to hack. They're going to go after known vulnerabilities. They're going to target ports. They're going to target elements that are susceptible to attack. You need to know where all those assets are located in order to defend against them. All right, so let's tie it all together. Let's look at this one additional house. Now imagine this is a house you have in Malibu, California. So you're like, that's awesome. And if you look closely, there's some two huge glaring vulnerabilities here. Those back doors are wide open. Now, if this is your home, you would likely be, okay, I should close those doors at some point if you were to leave someplace. Like we'll say you go to travel to uh, San, San Diego for the weekend. You probably close those doors. But what if you didn't know this was your house? What if no one knew this was your house? And what if a burglar like Kyle comes strolling around and realizes, hey, you know who's back windows are wide open and Frank can't defend against it because he didn't know he has to, this to defend. This is what's happening with many data breaches. Many data breaches are basically happening because companies, organizations, they don't even know those assets are theirs. It's critically important for us to track all those assets to ensure that we have ad adequate oversight into what the tax service looks like. When I was with the Bureau, there was a situation that arose where a medical institution basically had a group of doctors, physicians, and they basically um, had a server. They're like, oh, we want this server here. It's going to be epic. And so they created the server. And, you know, what do you populate servers with? Well, customer or patient data, obviously. Why would you populate anything else? So these physicians had this patient database sitting out there. Completely undefended, you know, um, why would you put any defenses around it? It was wide open. Anyone could see it. Uh, sure enough, someone came in, intruded upon it, took all the data. Um, and then we talked to the IT elements of this organization. And obviously, what did they say? We didn't know that was out there. We had no idea that existed. Uh, time and time again, this happens over and over. So you look at data breaches and you're wondering, like, how in the heck did they get breached? Many times, this is the situation. This is the vector. So this is the critical piece of information I want to share with everybody. All right. Turn it over for questions. Uh, Michael, loved it. The great presentation. Um, definitely uh, some huge insights there to, you know, these these critical oversights, right, that, that we're missing. Like, 
Um, and, you know, at Acuerdo, like Frank and I, like, uh, I would relate this to, you know, kind of what, what, what our mission is with, with our clients is like, you know, sometimes you, you don't know what you don't know because you're too close to it. You can't see things that are like right in front of your face sometimes uh, in an organization, right? So you have, you have a million houses and you don't even know which ones of those are, are yours or which ones are exposed, right? So, yeah, definitely, definitely it is a huge oversight. No, I, I, it happens a lot. And, you know, a lot of times it's not anyone's fault. Like it's no one's at fault per se, and especially in today's environment. You have a multitude of people going remote. You have um, organizations quickly trying to adapt, create VPN, multiple instances across the globe to ensure people can connect safely. You also have it complicated by the fact that you have also, if you think about the depressed economy, that is good and bad, but really bad when it comes to attacks or attackers because the hackers are, they actually have lack of opportunity as well. So that increased number of hackers, the attacks are increasing, unfortunately, um, as months go by because they have more time on their hands. The individuals who are out of work as well, so they turn to crime. And so oh, yeah. ultimately, now you have more people breaking into homes. So now it's more critical than ever. In addition, because of the hardship, many organizations are cutting back on spending. And they cut back on security and it's understandable to some degree, but it's not until these breaches happen that all of a sudden now they're like crap and they're trying to quickly figure out what happened, how do they mitigate it and it becomes highly problematic. It's a perfect storm and it's unfortunate for organizations trying to defend their assets and do business, but the tax service is going to consistently be something you got to be mindful of. Yeah. Yeah. So rhetor rhetorical question, what happens when you quarantine a bunch of hackers? Right. <laughs> it just sounds like a joke or something, right? That's exactly. Funny. I'm waiting for the punchline. Yeah. I don't know what happens. <laughs> well, I think this also really kind of like gives rise to like the the um you know the evolution of the the CISO inside of an organization and the need for like that command and control structure to have like increased inspection. Um, because there are so many hands that, that really touch the digital landscape inside of a business um, that if things come down to the fact that you've got a piece of, of JavaScript code, which creates, I mean, literally, if you look in some business where you've got tens of thousands of lines of code, um, you know, that's got to raise the hair on the back of people's necks. That The thing that really kind of comes to me is, you know, you talk all about a lot of the things that are like precursors you know, to um, like a breach occurring. But like one of the things I'd like to talk about a little bit with you is, you know, like the the fact that like, what are the outcomes? Because, you know, when you're, when you're looking at like bridging across the business landscape, and th these are conversations that Kyle and I get into on the daily, um, you know, talking to uh, a, you know, a CEO inside of an organization and talking about, you know, you have an asset management problem, you know, when they're thinking about like, Hey, I just need to land new clients right now. I need to retain clients. You know, if you look at the, like kind of on the onset, I said, customer experience, if you have a, um, you know, if your if your site goes down or you lose um, a lot of customer data, you're going to have a bad customer experience and that's going to impact your business. But let's think about outcomes in the sense that like, all right, a person can get a breach and an outcome could be one ransomware, right? So they, they lock you down um, and they get you into a Bitcoin exchange and there's a lot of like stress around that. Or it could be just out and out data theft. Like they took it. I may have backups, but like that's now out there, right? Like the data's, Elvis has left, you know, the the um, building, and so it's gone, and you're not going to get it back. Or maybe it's just a virus introduction, and now like the rest of your organization is is now like in a in a, a panic to try and you know eradicate this, and some of it may be stuff that's deeply planted, so you really don't know when the next shoe is going to drop, like. Can you talk to when you're talking to clients around this, you know, how you're getting them to like visualize the financial impact of, of some of these outcomes? All right. Uh, Frank, you did a great job, <laughs> you know, uh, but everything you said, it's the reality. And it, I understand the complication, right? Cause uh, obviously the focus of the organization, like we'll start talking about a bakery. They're not interested in like defending against a cyber attack. They're interested in making whatever baked goods they make, right? Cake bakery, they're focused on cakes, right? Mm -hmm. um, medical institutions, like the one that I described, they're focused on helping save people's lives. Like, and unfortunately, hackers don't care. 
um, hackers are very ruthless because they're focused on making money. So that is, that is the unfortunate reality. In a way, cybersecurity should be thought of to me. I think we should reframe how we think of cybersecurity. Cybersecurity should just be a cost of doing business. Sometimes organizations look at it as sort of a, an insurance policy, and it can be seen that way, but I disagree with that sentiment. I really think we should look at it like well, we buy internet access, you pay for that. You pay for a building, you pay for these things, you pay for your employees have laptops. You should just factor that into the cost of doing business. It should just be one of those things that just becomes small business, a solopreneur. They should be thinking about, okay, what am I going to allocate towards cybersecurity? That should just be the norm. We get to that state. Then all of a sudden those issues you're describing, they kind of melt away because ultimately this is just a reality. The attack service is going to consistently grow. Hackers are going to get bold. They're going to constantly evolve. It's interesting. Someone asked me the other day, actually about a year ago now, I'm thinking about it. Um, asked about a year ago, they asked me like, do you think hacking is ever going to go away? And I'm like, I thought about it, like, uh, maybe, no, no, because no. essentially it's a type of theft. So when I was talking to them, they were asking me some additional questions. I kind of thought about this. I was like, oh, you know what? And I, I posed a question to them. Well, what do you think theft will go away? And they were like, well, probably not. And they go, that's what hacking is. Hacking is just a form of theft, highly sophisticated, highly anonymized, which makes it quite powerful and potent. Like example, the analogy we ran, we started with, where if Kyle were to try to break into your, your home, Frank, it sounds like it would end poorly <laughs> for Kyle. However, yes. if Kyle is in Russia or Argentina or anywhere else in the globe and he hits your home in Austin, nothing's going to happen to him. And That's so right. he knows that. And so that is one of the key things hackers wear. They're aware of the same thing. Anonymity is their, one of the most potent weapons they have in the arsenal. Yeah. They basically hide. And so that's not going to go away. So I think organizations, in summary, just need to get back to refocusing how they think about cybersecurity. They really need to focus on just like, it's just the cost of doing business. Add it to the cost sheet and just be, okay, it's an operating cost. Accept it, run with it. Um, and I have a lot of guidance in case you're interested uh, in terms of selection of CISOs and all that stuff. We can get into that if you're interested in that stuff. But um, I definitely think people should really reevaluate re how they look at data breaches. They're not looking at them correctly today. Yeah, you know, Michael, as a as a like a strategic partner with this, like I think about, um, you know, the global uh, implications of this. You know, you mentioned anonymity, but in some cases, even if anonymity is blown, there's just lack of recourse, and so you know that these these aspects that like get into the legality of this in terms of how one would prosecute. You know, it's it's sometimes it's like arguing with a neighbor while your house is burning to the ground. Like you, 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 you have this thing that you need to take care of, and then when you turn around, you know, the the perpetrator is gone. It's it's such a, a powerful thing, and you hit on something up front. Like I, I haven't heard it articulated this way, and I was literally, I think we were thinking about this at the same time. But you know, the aspect of incorporating the cost of security into your cost of goods sold. Like this is what for you to be in business. Um, this is how you you uh, you set the foundation for your business technology. This is also how you kit out people at home. So if you've got work from home people at the edge, that forty percent of of your assets that are to be targeted, you know, within the context of people and keeping them safe and that data safe, like it is it is more than just a cost of doing business and a necessity um it is like your cost of goods sold like for you to produce that product and sell that product you need to make sure that that product gets there and that you can service that product and in order to do it this is the component of how you go to work exactly i mean uh frank it's like we rehearsed right <laughs> but no i agree everything i mean you hit it nail on the head and that's ultimately what organizations need to think about and they need to bring on the right people mm -hmm. i talk to organizations about bringing on the right team yeah uh, and, that, and that to me is quite critical having that right person or people run that program uh is uber critical and um, people don't think about to after the fact they might have the wrong person in play uh, motivation and empowering your cybersecurity team is is categorically criminal or categorically critical there are situations where I think it's criminal mm -hmm. and companies don't empower their workforce, especially when it comes to cybersecurity. It just really, really nullifies that skill set. In certain mm -hmm. situations, you can get away with micromanagement. You can. In certain situations, I get it. But not when it comes to that sophisticated, educated workforce in the cybersecurity team. You really need to have a leader that basically understands, trusts, builds a team with the right chemistry, empowers them to make good decisions. That's how you defend your network. 
you don't defend your network by you know uh, micromanaging, checking their timesheets. That's not how you do it. You can try and you'll you'll fail. You do it by bringing on someone who can actually motivate your team, get them thinking. Because one of the key components that we haven't really hit on that I want to touch upon now as I'm thinking about it is you want to bring on people when you're building out this team who are investigators. You want them to think through how a hacker does it. Like what we just did, that simple analogy, that simple example, companies should do that. Like if you're a CISO at an organization or director of cybersecurity, you should get your team together in the room and honestly just do what I just showed you. Look at a house, have them think about it. And then sort of let them think of like the attacker. If you're if you're breaking this home, how would you do it? All right, do three or four houses like that. And then afterwards, say, okay, let's look at our network. How yeah. would you hack our network? How do you break in? What vulnerabilities do we have? Are VPN secure? What are, what's our versioning? What do we do with SSH? Do we have Telnet open? Why are we using Telnet? Like ask them to come up with that. If they're the attackers, how do you, and they should know the information because they're the ones facilitating all the work on their network. Yeah. That's how you can properly start defending your network. So uh, you, you like to follow the great philosopher, I think it was Carl from Caddyshack who said, to catch a gopher, you got to think like a gopher. And that's really what you're talking about, right? Exactly. You really do. I, I think sometimes you have people who have a lot of certifications and, and they'll be wrong. I don't want to speak ill of individuals who get those certifications. I think those are quite critical, but you really need that person who can help your company organization think like that attacker, get in their mind, because ultimately that's what's going to help you defend that network, that sentiment, understanding the methodology. Those are things you want to sort of build into your cybersecurity apparatus. It's critical. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from the last time you and I were together on a, on a live session like this, I mean, you were talking a lot about um, what that criminal mind is like and right and drawing the parallels to like, hey, do you speed? Have you ever run a red light? Like that's it, basically, yeah, you're a criminal uh, in a small, you know, in a micro fashion, right? In a micro tactic. But like what's what's so different about speeding versus going out and like DDoSing your school, right? So um, they're both arguably wrong. Right, but to, to different degrees, right? And and you talk about how that evolution of of that criminal mind, like the evolution of like getting into like you get into one little thing and then you're into the next bigger thing and then it just gets bigger and bigger, right? Exactly. And yeah, for those of you who aren't familiar with what Kyle's referring to, I, I have a I have a presentation where I talk about the criminal mind. It's four observations I made when I was just dealing with this threat more more closely. I mean I still am, but to a lesser degree in terms of how close I am to that. But I would interview and interrogate a number of different hackers. And what Kyle's saying is what I've started observing. Key components. And many times uh, they start off not thinking what they're doing is wrong. A lot of hacking starts in video games, video game forums. Um, so one individual to highlight in that presentation, his name's Cam. He's actually uh, an analyst with uh, a government agency out of the UK now. But ultimately, he started off as a hacker. He wasn't very good. <laughs> But he was going after people who he was gaming with and they were bringing him offline and he basically wanted to seek revenge and he wanted to fill the reckoning. And so he attacked them. He went after their IPs, DOSed them or DDoSed them, and then he brought them offline and that's how he started. And he didn't really think it was that wrong. He didn't think it was that bad. And then he turned his attention to bigger organizations and then finally he was arrested. But ultimately, I think that's what happens. They start off small. And they justify their actions. We all do. And that's what Kyle's referring to. We all can justify our actions. And no matter what we do, those of you watching or listening are probably thinking like, I don't know if I can justify all my actions. You probably can. If you've done anything wrong in your life, you know what I'm talking about. Everyone has. I, I was late. I, of course, I'm going to speed a little bit, right? I exactly. I was late. My wife's pregnant. You know, I mean, just there's something a dumb. in the car. So there's, there's always something, right? There's, always <laughs> there's, like some, there's some ridiculous reason why my uncle got shot. I mean, just yeah. whatever. Uh, so there's a reason why people are speeding or what they're doing. Uh, and we all can justify it. And hackers are the exact same. Criminals are the same. So just get into that mindset. Sorry. Uh, we, we got a question from the audience uh, from, from Preston. Uh, is that how do you feel about uh, ID seal? And uh, I, I know nothing about that. So I'll leave that with you. Uh, I know nothing about it either. Uh, so okay, so I'm, Preston, I'm, uh, we, we know nothing about ID seal. So. Give us a little bit more context on that, please. I'm assuming it's something that basically will protect your identity um, in the event something transpires. Um, that's based on the name, but I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, if that's what he's referring to, I do think that is important for organizations and individuals to protect your identity. I don't know the elements of ID seal, but at least like one practical advice that everyone listening should do is freeze your credit. 
uh, score. Like that's one thing you can do. So even if my identity is taken, which would be a highly problematic situation, um, no one's going to open a line of credit in my name because my credit reports are frozen. And then all three credit agencies allow you to do this. It's easy now to do online. So you don't have to, before it was like a pain when I first did this at the mail in and all sorts of stuff. Now you don't do that. It's all online. You can unfreeze your credit reports as well. That will help you. Um, but identity protection is, is quite important. But on some degree, I don't necessarily know if it's as pivotal as maybe like what I'm referring to more in terms of more macro focus, really identifying from an organization perspective, all the vulnerabilities that exist. Because most hackers aren't necessarily going to be going out. They're not going to go after one person, right? They're going to go after treasure trove data. Um, they're they're going to you're going to spend time targeting an organization. You want big bang for your buck, right? You're not going to go after one individual. Like you're not going to go after like me as a random person. That makes no sense. But they will go after expanse. They will go after financial institutions. They're going after those big organizations. They're big game hunters many times, and that's what they're targeting. So that's the big critical component. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, you're right. It is an identity protection company. So, yep, right on the money there. So, um, Michael, I have a question for you. I want to unpack a little bit of what you were mentioning there because I think it's <clears throat> fairly like a um, powerful uh, topic, and I haven't really heard it discussed um, before when it comes to like security. But you know, you're kind of calling out, you know, the need for you know the security leadership inside of a business to not only have like these hard schools and uh, hard skills and be you know technically competent but to also have like these soft skills and leadership capabilities as well um as a means of affecting change um i think that's a really really powerful um set of like comments you made there can you kind of like like expound upon that a little bit more Oh, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm, I love building teams. So I was brought into Expanse to build our cyber risk apparatus, and that's what I'm doing. But when you deal with people who are highly skilled and specialized, um, micromanagement doesn't work. It demotivates. Um, there's a video I put on YouTube about this, but there's two effects that I see when it comes to micromanagement. And this is essentially what happens in cybersecurity teams when you micromanage your team. You create two issues. So one is you demotivate and you get people frustrated you get them agitated. They're not interested in helping. They're just interested in getting through the day, right? Mm -hmm. They're counting down hours. They just want to get back home. Or in this instance, they just want to turn off their laptop, right? So they're not working for you. They're just trying to sort of get through their time. And that's a horrible situation because the other component there is not only because they're not effectively doing their job, but ultimately they potentially could be speaking ill of your organization internally and externally. It's mm -hmm. a cancer when this happens. And so it may affect that one person, but then they affect others and it grows and grows and grows. So yeah. that is one effect. And it, to me, it's probably the more severe of the two. The second effect, you lose people. They're just going to leave because like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal this anymore. I'm going to get another job somewhere else. And now you lose someone who might've had two, three years experience. And now that's gone all because they're a bad manager. So I think it's critically important to guard against micromanagement mm -hmm. and to really empower that team. When you empower the team, the net effect is quite visible. You're able to now let them do what they're hired to do. So you're going to bring on people with the various certifications, specializations, but you want them to be creative, right? You want to create that environment so they can share, they can foster communication. You don't want them to be scared to message you. You want them to say, I have an idea. What's your idea, Bill? Well, how about we reconfigure our SOC server with these different dimensions and it can make this more secure? Well, why do you say that? Well, because I did some research, I did some reading, and now you're now this is awesome because your bills now doing what you want him to do. You want him to think creatively. You want to encourage that, and you're going to do that by empowering people. There's different techniques you can use to empower people, but one of the key components is like for cybersecurity, give them a budget, right? Let your people have a budget. Give them those ability to make decisions. Now, granted, the first step here is picking the right team. So clearly, if you're like, well, my team is not the right team to empower, I need to micromanage them. There's a few problems there, but ultimately the key component is picking the right people. Yeah. Find the right people. And now you trust the people now let them loose. So empowerment is a really big part of your message there. And I'd have to say that it actually does another third item 
uh, or actually a third item. So you mentioned two right off the bat, but I think there's a third thing that it also does to protect your business. And that is through that creativity, you ward off like myopic mindsets. So if you, if you have a tendency to micromanage and say, I want you to look at these three assets, keep your eye on these three things. They're not seeing that fourth and fifth thing that are sneaking in from the side because they literally are just asked just to watch this particular plane uh, or strata. And so to your point, like I, I love the idea of giving them a budget because giving a person a spend is empowerment. Um, and it causes them to think through, you know, the aspects of that spend as well, because you're going to ask them to report back on its effectiveness. I completely agree, Frank. That's a phenomenal point. Um, I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, exactly. I mean, that is that is one of the key components that I've seen and I see is when you you're right, you're just ho you become like hone in on one thing because that's mm -hmm. why. Well, because I'm supposed to do this and you're yeah. and you're not incentivized. And sometimes in situations I've been privy to it where you seek when you go outside the box you're reprimanded yes and so at that yeah. point you're like okay i'm just gonna stay here right yeah and if you yeah. want somebody to look at that ball all day long you get a black lab but if you, <laughs> you know yeah. you get another animal that's gonna yeah. watch everything all the time so and and this is what's critically important because I, I i said a few times i want to make sure i underline this point these are trained experts like you're bringing on engineers you're bringing on people with advanced degrees you're bringing on people who are paid very well like they're not like high school kids flipping burgers right and they're in high so, demand and they're right here so they exactly. can easily just flip yeah exactly and th this is what company and i i again i will talk about this all day long by the way uh, companies need to bring on strong leaders if you want to build a cybersecurity program you bring on a strong leader now do they need to have all the certifications no but they need to be sophisticated enough to understand the technology yeah they need to be aware of what the threat is but they need to know how to manage people some of the best CISOs I know are ones who can manage, who can build teams, who can motivate, who, again, that's so critical. So you're doing those interviews. You really want to look for that. You want to know that emotional quotient is high. You want that EQ there. Um, and if they have it and they're technical because they have some real hands, first hands experience, do they have all the certs? Maybe not. Maybe they do. But to me, those are all secondary. You need that someone to build that team. They can hire people with certifications, right? If you want somebody who basically knows how to configure your firewall, it should not be your CISO. Like he should not be, or she should not be there. Like, let me go, let me reconfigure this firewall for us. Like if that's happening, you probably have the wrong person in play. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yep. Strong, strong leaders, strong security program uh, in summary, right? Um, Michael, so appreciate your presentation today. Again, guys, I'm gonna show this on the screen here. I'm gonna maximize this. Um, go connect with MFD. There's his LinkedIn. Join his YouTube channel. I just start, I just subscribed, so uh, I'm gonna be a, a new loyal subscriber. Can't wait to see what you drop next in there, MFD. Uh, MFDA, uh, dropping some good stuff. I saw the micromanagement clip. That's some good, that's some really good stuff uh, as well. Um, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Appreciate your involvement here. And um, look forward to doing something with you again. This has been of great. Course. Yeah, I love it. Thank you guys for having me. And I thank your listeners for listening and watching. And uh, Frank, I appreciate it, sir. Great <laughs> job, guys. You guys are doing great work here. Thanks for listening to Dialed In. This show is brought to you by Acuerdo.io, the world's first orchestration agency for the future of work. Go check us out at Acuerdo.io. Special shout out to all of our in-network partners, all of you listeners, my co-founder, Frank Rogers, couldn't do this show without all of you guys. Thank you for your support. And remember to win in life, to win in business, to win in your career. It's not about being the strongest, the fastest, or the smartest, it's simply about being the most adaptable to change, the most dialed in.